Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. Yeah, my name is Philip O'Connor. I'm a very f- tired Philip O'Connor today. I think over the last week I've probably had less sleep than at any point in my life. And given that I do love a good uh, trip abroad to do an Olympics and that kind of thing, which is an exercise in sleep deprivation, uh, that's really saying something. So those of you that are listening to this, you probably follow me on social media. You probably know that I spent the last week uh, until this Monday, I came back from uh, the UFC's Fight Island in Abu Dhabi. And um, I did have a few things set up. I did have a few things that I wanted to do this week. But because of the time difference, and I just couldn't manage to get a podcast interview set up. So there's been a huge reaction to some of the work I did over there and some of the things that I did over there. So I just thought that I'd do a podcast today. Um, talking about some of those things, some of the things that I've already talked about, some of the things I haven't had a chance to talk about, and uh, basically where we go from here. And then I will be back next week with an interview. Uh, and a little bit later on today, I have the chance to talk to some wonderful new journalists. So hopefully I'll have something to share about that. Um, I know a whole lot of people aren't exactly hugely interested in sport, right? So it's not actually to do with uh, the sport or what I saw or Conor McGregor or Dustin Poirier. That It's more the whole situation that we find ourselves in in this new weird post-COVID or, or current COVID world. So for me, this trip uh, to Abu, Abu Dhabi, it was the first time I'd left Sweden since the beginning of March last year. So when I... Um, when the pandemic broke out originally, I was in Portugal at a women's football tournament and I ended up leaving that. They ended up cancelling the final because Italy got to uh, the final and it, the country was closing its borders. So they said to the women's team, OK, if you want to get back, you got to leave now. So they ended up leaving a day early and cancelling the final. And I think that was on the Tuesday. So on the Thursday, I arrived back in Stockholm. And since then, I actually haven't left the country at all, which has never happened. In all my 21 years of living here, I've never been in that country for as long a consecutive stretch as that. I've always been somewhere doing something. Uh, And again, if you're following me on social media, you'd well know that. So when this opportunity came up to go to Abu Dhabi, there was two things about it. One is that Conor McGregor's box office, right? Anything that guy does, when he fights, there's just, there's money to be made. And after spending so long, uh, sitting at home in Stockholm, uh, not doing anything, that I thought, okay, uh, I've, I've got to go do this because A, you know, you got to bring in some money, but B, it's actually something exciting to do as well. So, but it's not like the usual thing where you go to Las Vegas, right? So everything had to be arranged by the USC. They arranged flights and they arranged hotels and they arranged visas. And it ended up because they use sort of, you know, four star hotels and we'd usually stay, you know, in a wet hole in the ground if we could just to save a few quid. It ended up being a lot more expensive than expected. But, you know, we took it all over there. And one of the things I noticed immediately was that uh, the UFC decided that they were going to fix everything. So all the customs forms, all this kind of thing. And I take those things seriously, right? Carnet forms. You fill it in. You say, okay, this is my microphone. It's this model. It's worth this. It was bought then. This is the serial number on it. This is my camera. This is my... You didn't have to give laptops and that kind of thing, but certainly all the professional equipment. So I took it really, really seriously. 
And one of the things that I noticed, and it's one of the things that happens when you're dealing with certain countries in the Middle East, was that I couldn't bring my live view unit, right? Now, the live view unit is basically a little box. Um, it's kind of like a few mobile phones strapped together, a little bit bigger. It'd be like if you took, you know, six iPhone 4s or eight iPhone 4s and a big roll of gaffer tape and you uh, just stuck them all together, right? And what the live view does is you connect your camera to it. You connect your video camera to it via HDMI or SDI. And uh, that sends a signal then uh, to the Live View unit. And the Live View unit then has a bunch of different interfaces in it. So it has a couple of wireless modems, like 4G modems, exactly like, you know, the 4G modem that you might have with your broadband plan or the 4G that works on your phone. So you bang in a couple of SIM cards and it connects then to a server. And basically every news organization in the world has a Live View account. So they can take your live feed. Obviously, you agree with them, you agree a price, and they can take your Live View feed. And then you go and you broadcast. So I've used it so many times from, you know, Greta Thunberg's uh, Fridays for Future protests in town in Stockholm here to, you know, press conferences to all sorts of things. But when you look through the customs information for going to the United Arab Emirates, of which Abu Dhabi is a part, you can't bring anything that's manufactured in Israel. So that was straight out the window, which was... It's the first time in a long time, I think, that I've encountered that. You know, there are certain things in America as well. If you fill in all the boxes and you dot the I's and you cross the T's that you're absolutely not allowed to bring in there. Many of them have to do with Iran or whatever. You know, I don't tend to read the details because I don't really have a whole lot of stuff that's manufactured there. But that was the first inclination or the first indication uh, that this was not going to be like any other trip you do. So most of the other trips I do are going to be sort of within the EU. They're going to be within America. They're not going to be into dictatorships or quasi-dictatorships. A long time since I've been in a place like this working under these constraints. And you add that then to the fact that this was a bubble, right? So you get to Abu Dhabi, uh, and for once it was kind of amazing to be sitting on the plane there, and they brought me off before the business class passengers because I was going straight into the UFC bubble. So they want me to have contact with as few people as possible. So this uh, worker from the airport, she came on, Mr. O'Connor, let's go. She brought me out. And she whisked me right through the whole passport control. She brought me through customs. And as it turned out, they had no interest in what was in the bag. I could have brought 50 live viewers and they wouldn't have paid any attention to the whole thing. But it was just one of those things that you don't want to get stopped with those things and have a battery that's not on the list or have something that's made in Israel because you end up having to answer questions and they can say, oh, you have to pay this duty or that tax or whatever to get it in there. So I just don't do it. I just stick to whatever I've got there. So I had my reasonably minimalist kit of my video camera and then I had another uh, slightly smaller uh, DSLR camera that I was using and that was pretty much it and lenses and that so we went through that really quickly and then they brought me this has never happened before they brought me through the VIP exit right so everything was controlled from the moment you got on the ground in Abu Dhabi you were just straight into this bubble as quickly as they could get you in there I got onto a coach 53-seater coach uh, on my own and was driven to the hotel, taken in there. Everything was hosed down, all my luggage was hosed down and locked away for 48 hours, during which I had two COVID tests. So, like, once the two tests came back negative, I was able to move around, but then again, only in the bubble, okay? Only in the bubble itself. And what was weird there is that in that time, you kind of want to learn more about where you are and what you're doing, what this place is about, you know, who lives here, who runs the show, who owns everything, who makes the decisions here. And it was at that point, you know, when you start to research Abu Dhabi as a place that you start to find out some stuff, some of which is fascinating, some of which is extremely worrying. And one of the things um, you have to look at and you have to sort of take into account in a place like this is that the free press there is not free, right? So censorship exists, laws exist. There are all sorts of laws that you don't get in other countries, right? And some of the punishments for them are everything from, you know, fines and periods of imprisonment to lashings and stoning, right? So 
you can't insult women. You know, the specific, I think there's actually specific laws that say that you can't insult women and that that leads to a certain penalty. So one of the things, you can't kiss in public, not that I had anybody there that I was going to be kissing, but that's one of those things that you just can't do. But when it came to the media side of things, I noticed that there were Westerners or people from outside of Abu Dhabi and outside the United Arab Emirates who had been there and who had uh, been insulting to other people on social media and it got kicked out. Now, that's about 60% of the modern uh, Western personality is to insult people on social media. And though I try not to insult people personally, it, let's face it, it does happen, especially to politicians. I was thinking, you know, how can this, how does this work in practice, right? If I say something about Dana White, if I say something about Conor McGregor, if I say something about Michal Martin or Donald Trump now, are they going to come knocking on my door and throw me out? And the answer was, very possibly. You know, they, they have an eye on people when they come into the country. They want to know what people are doing. And they keep an eye on these things. Um, I during the period I was there, like I, you kind of think, okay, this is Big Brother. You know, are they really watching everything I'm doing? Um, are they really watching everything I'm saying? Maybe not, but they are watching. So during the period I was over there uh, last year, as I mentioned there, I was over in Portugal doing that women's football tournament because I was writing a very, very, very long report about the Norwegian uh, women's soccer team, right, the national soccer team, because and how they work with the media because it's one of those things that fascinates me and I'm hoping to translate it into, in, uh, into English. But um, while I was over there, that was basically, I was getting paid a stipendium from the Swedish gambling monopoly, which is called Svenska Spel, okay, Swedish gambling. And last week, whilst I was in Abu Dhabi, they released a press release where like a 40 or 45 minute interview with me came out where I explained all of the things that I had done for this report, all of the people that I'd spoken to and, you know, what the contents of the report were and what my conclusions were. And I just discussed all these things with a representative of Svenska Spiel, and that came out, and a press release came out about it, and they said, oh, you know, just when it comes out, just go and I check it out. I checked it out beforehand, but they wanted me to check it out once more. So they mailed me the link, and I clicked on it, and what I got was a government website saying that, uh, sorry, this thing, this kind of thing is not available in Abu Dhabi, because it had to do with gambling, okay? You're talking about a predominantly Muslim country, you're talking about elements of Sharia law, and so you couldn't do that. Um, pornography, you can't get to porn sites, you can't get to gambling sites, I'm sure you can't get to sites to do with alcohol or that kind of thing either. So that was a bit of a heads up, you know, to be in a place where the internet or the supposedly free internet, and I know these things happen, I know what happens in China, I know that certain things are sort of banned wherever you go. So that wasn't too bad because, you know, that's not news. That doesn't affect me. I'd seen the email. I knew what was going to be in that. Uh, it would have been nice to see the press release and the interview online, but I couldn't see it. You know, everything was blocked. So that's fair enough. You fast forward then throughout the week because one of the things that you do, it's not enough to just create work, right? It's not enough to just, you know, film press conferences and, and write articles and that. In the modern media world, you've got to be a presence on social media. You're going to be seen to be doing these things and other journalists will see you and other editors will see you. And that's what generates more work, right? If you do good reporting and if you're entertaining and engaging about a subject, well, then you own that space and other people will come looking for you. So one of the uh, companies or one of the new organizations that was trying to help out whilst I was over there is a new Swedish MMA website and social set of social media accounts called Frontkick Online, right? So it's these two guys, Ash and Johan, have set it up. And they're just, they're lovely blogs. They were over in Las Vegas last year. I think it was at the Donald Cerrone fight when I was over there. I bumped into them a few times. And, you know, we have some mutual friends and I've gotten to know them well over the last year. And they'd started this, you know, just a couple of months ago. Now, there's a Swedish fighter on the card called Amir Albazi. And I was thinking, well, if I can help out these guys, I'm there with a microphone and a camera anyway I speak Swedish I know half of Amir's family right the guy who did or who organized a couple of COVID tests for me before I even left Sweden was actually a cousin of his so I said okay 
I'll go and I'll take some videos and I'll send them back. So I interviewed Amir at the Fighter Hotel and I sent it back and great. And I was sending them, you know, stuff that I was getting for their Instagram story. And it meant that they were the only Swedish outlet uh, that, that had anything coming from Fight Island itself, right? Which is, you know, any sort of exclusivity is good, especially when you're trying to build your business. And you know, I was more than happy to help them out. There's no payment in it, but some people you're just willing to help them out. And then maybe down the road, uh, they might have some paid work for me. And if that happens, great. If not, you know, that's my, my good deed for the day, my corporate social responsibility. I've been a good person and the karma will come back on me fantastic so the weigh-ins happen um friday morning conor mcgregor gets up there and then they have these ceremonial weigh-ins where at the venue people get up on the stage and they stand there and they flex their muscles and we all take the pictures and that's what winds up on the news before the fights actually happen you know so um I had done uh, all of that, and we had decided that we were going to do an Instagram live thing, right? For So for all the front kick online followers, they were going to call me up. I was sitting in the press room. looked really cool because, you know, you have all the UFC branding and the desks and, you know, MMA media people that their viewers would have known sitting in the background. And it was cool. So, you know, Friday evening, we're going to hook up. We're going to do this. And I'm looking at my watch because every half hour, there's like these shuttle buses that go back to the hotel. I want to get back there and eat. I was going, oh, this is grand. We can do this for half an hour. So the lads call me in on Instagram Live and I'm pressing the button to accept and turn on my camera and there's a pause of about 20 seconds and nothing happens. So I sent them a message and said, lads, you know, can you invite me in again? And they did and nothing happened. And then I sent them a request saying, you know, thinking this must be a connection thing or something like that. So I sent them a request and said, um, can you can you let me into the conversation or can I join in the conversation? So same thing, nothing happened. And we must have did it 10 times before the penny dropped that these live functions on social media platforms don't work in the United Arab Emirates. And the reason for that, I'm guessing, is because if you go back to the Arab Spring and places like Egypt, a lot of that was streamed live on Facebook and on YouTube. And, you know, Instagram Live didn't exist then, but it's the same kind of technology. And that unfiltered contact with people on the street is not going to work over there. Okay, so they don't want anybody being able to live stream these things without the state being able to cut them off. Now, we've heard of this in revolutions all over the world, right? It's not just in the Middle East. This happens in Asia and it happens in South America and it happens in Europe and it happens all over the place. All of a sudden, you know, mobile networks are knocked down in the middle of protests so that people can't do things like this. But it was kind of jarring to be in a situation whereby I couldn't bring in the live view because it was made in Israel. I couldn't bring in Instagram live. I couldn't use my phone to go live because all those things were blocked. Now, I'm sure there's ways around it. And the way we eventually ended up doing it was that I went back to the hotel on the bus. I had a quick bite to eat. And we set up our stuff then uh, on Zoom. So I recorded the Zoom. Or did I let Asher? I don't know. I think I let Asher record it. So he recorded the conversation. And we had you know 20 minutes or 40 minutes of a discussion about the fights and Fight Island. And telling you a lot of the things I'm telling you now. And he was able to put that up then on their YouTube channel. But, you know, this thing of not being able to broadcast live, to me... I was kind of insulted by it, right? Because I'm there to tell stories and anybody who is restricting my ability to do so, be that a government or the UFC or some fighter's agent or manager uh, who doesn't want me talking to them or doesn't want me saying negative things about them or whatever, I don't take that very well at all, right? It's just one of those things that just annoys me. But they're the constraints and you kind of have to accept that this is how it's going to be in places like that that don't have their freedom. Now, that's not to say that you have to leave it there, right? That you have to go, okay, I accept this situation. Um, so what I did was I waited 
And I knew I was going to have something to say about the whole situation. It's not an ideal situation. So you have the UFC doing their event over there. But because of the fact that there's a limited number of accreditations for absolutely everything now, you cannot have a press box or a press row that's packed the way it used to be. You can't have journalists standing elbow to elbow at the back of a press conference. So they have to limit the, the number of people there. And to not do so would be irresponsible. But there's always a risk then. And I'm not saying that the UFC did this, but you know, other sporting organizations, I'm sure, will consider it. They go, okay, we'll just turn down accreditations from those people who are a pain in the ass, right? Those people who've broken news about us that we don't like or that, uh, you know, people that have, you know, insulted us in the past or written negatively about us or that they ask difficult questions, right? Now, there's no evidence to suggest that that's after happening with the UFC, but it's one of those things that's out there. And, you know, we've got to be very, very careful in this situation, right? So an awful lot of American sports organizations are very open. So you can go into the locker room in the NBA. I'm sure you've heard me speak about these things before. But that's all out the window now because of COVID. So the level of access is dropping off sharply. Journalists are sitting at home. They're on Zoom. Some guy or girl's put up there. There's very little room for the casual conversation on the side, right? So I enjoy being in the hotel, talking to people who are involved in the business of combat sports. And that's where you build your sources. You don't you don't need to write about everything. You don't need to quote everything. But you hear things from people. And that is the basis of, you know, what you decide to focus on going forward. So we got to do a little bit of that. But when that, that's limited, journalism suffers. Because we're not really supposed to be insiders, but we're supposed to know what's going on on the inside. And the way we do that is by talking to people and by them telling us things that are affecting them and that are happening in their world. Some things they're happy about, some things they're less happy about, uh, some things they want covered up, some things they won't talk to you about at all. But that contact is absolutely essential. And it's it's often much easier to do it face-to-face. I had some conversations with people over there that I wouldn't do over WhatsApp, especially in a place where things are being watched, right? Now, I know WhatsApp is allegedly encrypted, but some things you just got to take face-to-face in a corner of a room, you know, that you want to ask somebody about something. So that was a little bit difficult. But like I say, I decided I was going to sort of keep my powder dry. I decided I wasn't going to insult people or Abu Dhabi or the United Arab Emirates uh, on social media. I wasn't going to do any of that. I wasn't going to lift too many of these things until uh, we were done and dusted. Now, the UFC is also not a company that operates. It's not like other boys and girls, right? It operates slightly differently. It came out of a situation where, you know, this sport was an outlier that most people hated. They actively despised. They wanted to see it banned. They never wanted to see it legalized. So the people who started to write about it, for the most part, there wouldn't have been too many professional journalists in the very beginning who were able to make a living. And there's still very few professional journalists who can make a living solely covering combat sports, right? There's only a handful who can do that. And they are kind of dependent on the UFC and Bellator and one and the various boxing promoters to be able to make their money. And that puts them in a very invidious position, right? Because if they piss somebody off, and this has happened with some very, very high profile journalists, I won't name any names so as not to draw attention to them, but they've written stories that these organizations didn't like, and all of a sudden they find themselves out in the cold. Now, all of a sudden, you also find that media organizations are allowing this to happen, which is, you know, to me, it's bordering on criminal. You don't get to decide what I do or what I say or what I write about, okay? You can absolutely demand to be treated fairly and you can demand to have anything that is incorrect uh, corrected on the record, right? But you don't get to wipe out negative things. You don't get to stop me from doing this job because this job is not PR. This job is journalism. So when it came to the end of the stay on Fight Island, 
I had been toying with writing a piece, like, you know, one of these stand-back pieces, say, okay, what did I actually see this week? What did I learn this week? And what I learned and what I saw and what I experienced and what was confirmed to me in my time there was the UFC and Abu Dhabi are very much alike. So I wrote a piece for the Irish Independent newspaper and I spoke to my good friends on the Bash podcast, P.T. Carroll and Niall McGrath, about all of these things, about journalism in the bubble, about Abu Dhabi, about how difficult it is to sit there and watch fights and to stay in these four and five star hotels and to be, you know, you know, we had to obviously pay for being fed and watered and that kind of thing, but to be treated well and driven around on buses and, you know, allowed to interview fighters and athletes and, and managers and agents. But to do all that against the background of people who aren't free, right? The people who are there serving us in the restaurants, the people who drove those buses, the people who were doing security at the venues that we were in and making sure that other people possibly infected with COVID couldn't get in. Those people aren't free, right? And you've got to, you can't turn a blind eye to that. You, you have to address that fact because that's the elephant in the room. So I did that in an article in the Irish Independent and funnily enough, I was actually on uh, Etihad Airways on the way home when I bought like, you know, 15 euros worth of Wi-Fi to sort of check up on mails and that, but also to send an article to the Irish Independent newspaper. And it's open there for everybody to see. I'm sure you'll find it on my social media. And it kind of blew up because it addressed all of these things that people didn't really address in all the time that we were there, right? Now, I get back to that thing of what's the purpose of media in, in terms of sport, in terms of sporting events, right? I believe that you've got to go there and you've got to tell the truth that you see, right? But MMA media is a different beast, right? It's a sort of, uh, it's fan-driven, it's engagement-driven, it's driven by content, it's driven by putting stuff out there on social media that people find interesting on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch. And it's not really prone to looking at the bigger picture, right? The political picture, how Dana White supported Donald Trump, um, how there's a, an awful lot of conspiracy theorists and white supremacists in the sports. That's just allowed to go. Very few people, you know, with the exception of Karim Zidane, who's a tremendous journalist and has written about these things for a long time, but he's the exception rather than, than the rule. There is some excellent work done in the area of CTE, collective bargaining, but it's very much in the minority. Most of it is, this fighter said this, this fighter said that, now they're going to fight, it's going to be great, you know? And again, I don't want to denigrate the people who are doing this because this is what they're asked to do and this is what they're paid to do. Very few editors are saying to them, look lads, we want more about Abu Dhabi. We want more about human rights in Abu Dhabi. We want more about collective bargaining agreements in Nevada and California, New York and Texas. So <clears throat> they're sticking to the line of, you know, letting people read what it is they're already getting. So you can't really criticize individual journalists, but I do think that we need to have a situation where, whereby it's possible to stand back and put this sport and this company or these companies and these people in their much wider context, right? Because none of this happens in a vacuum. When you're doing PR, you want everybody to come into your world and they, you want people to believe that your narrative or the world that you create around your brand is the reality. And it is a reality, but it's not the reality, right? In truth, the UFC going to Abu Dhabi is a sporting statement, but it's also a political statement. And we've got to interrogate all the things around that, all the problematic things around that, why it's being done, who's paying for it, who's benefiting, who is suffering, okay, who the victims are here, who's making money, who's not, who's putting in the effort and getting paid for it, and who's not putting in the effort and making out like bandits. So we have to ask all these questions. But again, we have to balance that against the risk of losing access, right? Now, to me, there is no balancing to be done there i have to do what i have to do and that's just the way i am but i am like enormously privileged 
to not be dependent on the UFC or on the sport of mixed martial arts for my living. And I understand that. I can say things, and if they say to me, you're never going to get an accreditation ever again, which I don't think they'll do, but if they were ever to say that, I will survive. I'll still write about soccer, and I'll write about politics, and I'll turn up on YouTube, and I'll commentate on races and fights and everything else. I will survive without them. Some people won't. Okay, an awful lot of people in the sport of mixed martial arts over the last year of the pandemic have lost their jobs or they found their hours cut in half and they just, you know, they're not even in a position to take that risk because they're not 100% sure that their employers or that the outlets that they work for are going to back them in that situation. I know that a lot of the people that I work for are going to back me if it ever came down to it because I work for some of the biggest organizations in the world and they're used to do, dealing with these things. They're literally used to, you know, having their staff arrested when reporting in dictatorships and, you know, using diplomacy to get these people free. So, you know, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty secure in what I'm doing there. <clears throat> but it is one of those things that we have to talk about because what we're essentially talking about here in terms of both journalism and mixed martial arts and the people who live in Abu Dhabi is levels of freedom and what it is that decides how free or unfree you are. And in many cases, it's money. Uh, the more money you have, the more capable you are of doing certain things, the more the freer you are to do certain things. In other cases, it's privilege. So I wouldn't have been one of the richest people in Abu Dhabi last week, but I know that the organizations that I work for are going to back me and they're going to fight my corner if anything is to happen, if I'm to get arrested for doing something that I, that I don't do. Uh, and then, you know, in the final instance, some people are just not free at all. You have a situation there where um, visas are given to workers coming into Abu Dhabi, maybe low-paid workers, and their f their fate is essentially tied to that employer and to that working visa and to be able to being able to continue working that for that person. So they can't complain about their wages, they can't complain about bullying or their conditions or anything else like that because it's so easy just to tear up that visa and go, you know what, you're out of here. Go back to Bangladesh, go back to the Philippines, go back to India or Pakistan or wherever you came from because you're done here. Um, do I have any answers to this? No. But what I do have is that article and those articles that I've written. Uh, I do have this podcast where I'm sharing these things with you. And I do have a platform whereby I can discuss these things with fans, with fighters, with managers, with promoters, and with other journalists. Because these are the kinds of things that aren't going away, right? We're looking forward to uh, a Winter Olympics in China coming up, I think, in 2022, depending on how the calendar works out. Um, we're looking at a World Cup coming up in Qatar and uh, in I can't even remember when that's supposed to be now but these are all the things that we're, we're facing into in the near future so these things are not going away in fact they're becoming more and more and more prevalent if you look at the kind of places that we're going for these tournaments the last World Cup was held in Russia which is arguably still quite controlled not to the extent that it was when i was growing up in the 70s and the 80s but there's still uh, you know power and privilege controlling access to the media and controlling what can and can't be done there as well so these things are not going to go away uh, you have a situation where under, certainly under donald trump it was very difficult to get a, a journalist visa into america it reminds me i better apply for one of those again now that joe biden is in because uh, if you get that you're an awful lot better off um so it's quite difficult to get in there as well. So these are things that we have to address. Britain has now left the EU. What's going to change there? How easy is it for me? How easy is it going to be for me to go to, for example, Northern Ireland and go and report on a you know, prospective border poll there? If I want to go to Derry and Belfast and places where I know a lot of people and I feel like I do a lot of good reporting, am I going to be able to do that? So these questions are far bigger than sport. They're far bigger than sports washing. They're far bigger than the UFC and the United Arab Emirates and the, you know, the unholy union between those two organizations that uh, allows these things to happen. So you know, all I can say, the only answer I can give you is that I'm going to keep going. I can't stop asking these questions. I may not be able to answers i may be pushed further and further away from the corridors of power in the center where these things
things are happening. But you know, if that's the way it has to be, that's the way it has to be. Right, I gotta go and make the last couple of slides for this presentation about time and stress management for journalists from Rathmines. It's been a pleasure as always to speak to you. Get in touch if you've any thoughts on these things and um I'd love to discuss these things with you and keep these discussions going. So uh have a fantastic rest of the week and hopefully I'll get a few hours sleep between now and the next time I talk to you. Um in the meantime, be good to yourselves. Yeah.